You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Even a, a runner or a triathlete with not a lot of speed can become a Jedi of the mental game. And that to me is exciting. It's really democratizing. If you choose to invest yourself in the process, I mean, I'm living proof. I view my mental game as a real strength now, whereas it was a, a huge liability early on. So it can be very rewarding to be intentional about the process of getting better in, in the psychological aspect. That was Matt Fitzgerald. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, Marnie on the Move listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Just a few things up front. I hope you are enjoying the Fueled by MOTM Tips and Advice Weekly episodes, which kicked off with a series on Podcasting 101. Final episode in the series drops this weekend. And starting next week, I'll be launching Throwback Thursdays by featuring Marnie on the Move podcast episodes from the archives every Thursday, since some of you are new and may not have heard all 125 episodes. Okay, I am super excited to share my conversation with today's guest, Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald is a world-renowned endurance sports writer. He has authored some of the best books on running, triathlon, sports nutrition, and mindset, many of which are my favorites and go-tos. His books include the best-selling Racing Weight, Iron Wars, about Dave Scott and Mark Allen, 80-20 Running, 80-20 Triathlon, How Bad Do You Want It?, and his newest book, Running the Dream. Matt is also a renowned running and triathlon coach, a sports nutritionist, and a lifelong athlete. On today's episode, I sync up with Matt about his recent book, Running the Dream, which is all about his experience living at altitude for 13 weeks, training with the Hoka Nas Elite team and coach Ben Rosario before racing the Chicago Marathon. He completely immersed himself in the pro-life, from nutrition and training to recovery and sleep. We talk about the book, and we also do a deep dive into where his journey began with running, his passion for marathoning, his career as a writer, and his foray into coaching. We also discuss the philosophy behind 80-20 running, the psychobiological concept of mind over muscle, which he writes about in his book, How Bad Do You Want It? And we chat about his famous, very personal book, Life is a Marathon. Matt also shares insight on his next book, The Comeback Quotient, coming out in December 2020. Additionally, Matt shares his experience with COVID-19 and how he's now making a comeback to running and what he has lined up on the horizon this summer. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Scroll through the Marnie on the Move podcast episodes on your Apple device. Click on five stars, click on write a review and share what you love. Also, follow Marnie on the Move on Instagram and share what you're listening to in your stories. Tag us, Marnie on the Move. And as always, feel free to email or DM us with questions, guest suggestions, or advertising inquiries at marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com. Now, on to our episode. And of course, before we get started, a word about our sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD. Today's episode is fueled by Mad Ritual CBD. Mad Ritual CBD has changed my recovery game in a really big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high-quality, CBD-infused products. Their CBD balm is off the charts amazing. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100-plus five-star reviews. The balms have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD-infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So, if you are sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. 
Founded by women athletes and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website, madritual.com, and use the code Marnie on the Move. Now, on to the episode. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I've been reading your books on running, triathlon, training, nutrition, and mindset for at least a decade, from Iron Wars to How Bad You Want It, and of course, 80-20 Triathlon, and your new book, Running the Dream. Where did running begin for you? It began early for me. My dad was uh, running marathons in, in the 80s. I grew up in New Hampshire, and my dad was a long-distance swimmer when, when he was young, and then he was in the Navy Special Forces in the Vietnam era, you know, which is very physical. And uh, after he got out of the Navy, he just, I think, needed an outlet and got into running. Ran his first Boston Marathon in 83. I was 11 at the time. And my, my t- I have two siblings, both brothers. I'm, I'm the middle child. And we all ran. We went down to watch, and then we all ran the last mile with our father and crossed the finish line with him. So I, I'm fond of saying the first mile I ever ran was the last mile of the Boston Marathon, which is a pretty awesome introduction to the sport. And, you know, my, my dad just made long distance running seem normal to me. It was right in, in the homes. I, yeah, I got into it too. Um, and I, it helped that I was no good at any other sport. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's really cool though. I mean, to run the last mile of the Boston marathon at such a young age. I mean, now we can't do those kind of things anymore, really. Right. Yep. But that's an awesome experience. Yeah, it really was. I'm just fast forward like decades later, I'm still at it. So, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, that's a, I'm actually not a parent myself, but it, it is a powerful message on, you know, the influence that you, you have on your children just by setting an example. He never told me to run. He just right. ran. And that really, I think, you know, is the key with kids too. <laughs> you can't right. tell them what to do. You need to show them what to do. <laughs> exactly. Wait, so how many marathons have you run so far? Can you count? I can't. I, I don't. I mean, I, I've had some, I mean, do the ones in my Ironmans count? I don't know. I've done a few, even before COVID-19 came around and, and all the virtual races came around, I would solo time trial marathons. <laughs> so do those count? I don't know. But I think over 40 official ones, somewhere somewhere in the 40s. That's a lot. How do you solo? Do you plant water bottles along the course? Or do you have like a hydration pack? Like, What do you do when you're training by yourself and doing these solo marathons or long distance training? Usually what I'll do is I'll I'll set up a little, I live in Northern California, and it just so happens that if I step outside my door and run the most convenient loop, it's exactly two miles. I'm just on the nose, which is a sort of good, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of marathons have about two miles between fluid stations. So right. I, I just uh, set up a little drink station at the foot of my driveway. And each time I come around, I'll just grab a bottle, drink it on the fly, and then I'll, I dump it. There's like a community mailbox in our neighborhood, and I just the the I, I mean the neighbors got to be wondering what's going on because <laughs> over the over the course of two and a half three hours, these bottles just pile up under the, under the community mailbox, and then of course I collect them later. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I mean I live in New York City, so when I do, I mean I usually will take a water bottle with me. And pre-COVID times, there's water fountains all along the West Side Highway, and of course you could pop into a bodega and get water. But I've been trying to figure out just what to do now because I'm not yeah. popping into a bodega, and I'm certainly not drinking from a water fountain. So I've been looking into hydration vests, even though I usually run with a handheld, but you know, that's really only good for like eight or nine miles. So I was just thinking. So is marathon your favorite distance? It really is, which is weird because I I really, I stunk at running marathons in the beginning. I just, you know, my first one was a disaster. Yeah. My second, my second one was a milder disaster. And it just, for some reason, I guess because I felt like, well, I'm good at running. Why can't I figure this out? And, you know, there is a mystique around the marathon. So, you know, some people, they run a disastrous first marathon and they, the lesson they come away with is never again. But for me, <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to crack that nut. And for a long, long time, I, I felt that I never really would. 
and but eventually I I kept at it and now I feel like I have kind of mastered it and not that I you know am setting world records but mastery is all it's relative to your level so I feel like I I really know how to prepare for and execute a marathon. So how long did it take you from was your first goal to BQ or was there a different goal? My first goal, so I ran, my first marathon was the 1999 California International Marathon. So I would have been 28 at the time. And, you know, I was ambitious because, you know, I had been a top high school runner and, you know, I had, I felt like I had a little bit of a pedigree. Now I got, I got away from running, got back into it, but immediately I was ambitious. So I had friends who said, your first marathon should just be checking the box and then worry, worry about hitting it out of the park. But, you know, I was naive and and arrogant and so i one of those buddies who was cautioning me uh he had a he had a personal best of 246 so my goal was to beat that in my first marathon um and (laughs) i think i ended up at i I ended up at uh i want to say like 338 yeah i mean i was i was on i was on 245 pace for 18 miles but that's great walked most of the rest (laughs) i have to say that I've been doing triathlons and running for 14 years and I did my first marathon last year. I did the New York City Marathon and I have all these great coaches and I have, you know, worked with all these studios and runners and athletes and I, all, everything anybody ever said just like went in one ear and like right out the other. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I yeah. did it, it took me, it took a long time and I will blame it on having a cough leading into it and then the cough coming full circle, mile 13. I ran off the course. I literally ran through the finish line and straight up the hill. I didn't even stop to take a photo. Like I was so just done. I got into my car and my partner had food and I just ate everything in the car. And I'm like, take me. I'm like, take me home. I never want to do another marathon again. And then like the next day I signed up for three. And they're all canceled now. Honestly, I don't really think I was ready to do another marathon. And so it's interesting that you say that your first one, you were so ambitious and you were going to, you had this whole plan and then that whole plan went out the window. And then, so when did you do your next one? Was it right after or? No, I I, I waited a year actually, but but I wasn't really waiting because then I I was, I was really more interested in triathlon than Mm -hmm. running then. So I I went through a full triathlon season and then the next fall I, I took my second swing at the marathon how long did it take you to get into Boston or was that never a goal to me? Well, I mean, this is part of the arrogance again. Like to me, that was just too soft a goal. Okay. You know, so I I was thinking way beyond that, but in point of fact, I don't think I qualified for Boston in my second marathon either. So it probably wasn't until my third that that I did. So I just, I think it's fair to say that it was inevitable. I mean, you know, I wasn't at the level where it was, it remained to be seen whether I was able to qualify I was just thinking up the joint in general, like not, yeah. not, not running up to my, anywhere close to my potential. So I was just trying to just leapfrog right past Boston and beat my buddy's best time and join the sub 240 club. And I, I was just way ahead of myself, didn't know what I was doing. And it, I had a, more than a few comeuppances. You've written over 20 books, right? Like, was it, what's the number, 28 now? 29? I, like marathons, I don't count. I, don't count I know. Books. At a certain point, you stop counting. <laughs> yeah. So when did you uh, begin your writing career? Even earlier than I started running, and and I got the writing from my father as well. Um, he he was he was a published novelist, but by, by the time I was of an age, you know that I could read, and you know you go to school and you know some kids like math the best and they hate English and. I loved reading and writing from, from the get-go, and I think I was nine years old when I decided. And again, I had the advantage of having a role model right in the home. You know, something, you know, not a lot of people would like to be writers, but a lot of people have parents saying, oh, that's not a safe mm-hmm. route. You should, yeah. you should get an MBA. <laughs> you need to go to law school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. And you're a writer anyway. Yeah, you could with words, but get a law degree. And so I knew it was something you could do. And I had an interest in it. And I'm just one of those people that, I mean, that I never changed my mind or deviated at any point. I didn't know exactly what form a writing career would take for me. 
but I knew that's what I was going to, to do. And again, it, it helped that I was really no good at anything else. So <laughs> channeled me. <laughs> Did you go to college for writing? I went to uh, a small liberal arts college near Philadelphia called Haverford College. And okay. they it was so small, they didn't even have like a journalism department. But you know, they had an English department. And so, you know, that's... You know, I, I probably knew I was going to major in English when I was 10. Yeah, That's <laughs> so cool. <laughs> when did coaching start for you? Because you're also a coach. I mean, I've downloaded some of your training plans from different programs. When did that start for you? 2001. So in 1995, I, I was a couple years out of college then and moved to San Francisco for no particular reason. And I just I thought it would be a good place to start a writing career, honestly. And but the job, I, and I wasn't running at the time, actually. I'd gotten away from it. But I, I just happened to get a job with a startup endurance sports magazine uh, called Multisport. And so I, I, was, I was a journalist. I, you know, I was working as a writer. And it was in a subject area that was of interest to me, though I wasn't actively an athlete. But being in that milieu, I just got, I got sucked back into it took a while because I was overweight and out of shape. Yeah, but yeah, step by step, I just went down that slippery slope back to full obsession. And but I, I I did not think of myself or present myself as any kind of expert, and because I wasn't. So if I if I was writing an article, say about you know training for a marathon, I would call up experts, right. interview them, and share what they had to say. But you know I was. I was training and racing myself. I was I was learning a ton. I and mean, it was just a great environment to observe. You know, I got a chance to learn at the feet of the top athletes, coaches, and scientists and on the planet. So it was just a tremendous education. And there came a point when I just started to feel like, well, I can start offering my own opinions here. Right. And so I got a certification in, in 2001 and started coaching at that time. I get that. I feel like from all the conversations that I have with professional athletes and coaches and even people like you, like I'm learning so much and I love it. And then this summer I did my Ironman coaching certification just because I wanted to see what it was like. And I th I've never learned so much. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done mm -hmm. in my career in terms of just really understanding and learning and processing all new kinds of information. Yep. It was eye-opening. Having the opportunity to do those kind of things is just so cool. Speaking of opportunities, and it seems like you've been blessed with the opportunity to do these kinds of things as a writer, especially when I'm reading your new book, Running the Dream, which is so cool and super inspiring. I have always wanted to live and train at altitude. It's one of those things on my bucket list. And that paired with training with the pros at altitude, that's so next level. I've been loving your new book and story. Oh, thank you. Living vicariously through your experience and feeling very motivated to set new goals for running in these COVID times. Tell me about your new book and what inspired you to write it. I've always viewed life as kind of like this blank slate that you can put whatever you want on. Again, that goes back to the way I was raised, I guess. And, you know, I fell into a career that was kind of accidental. I knew I was going to write. I didn't know I was going to put my passion for endurance sports together with the writing. But that's how it worked out. And it's a really good life. And, you know, I just tried to I have a lot of passion for it. I have a lot of curiosity. So I allow my passion and my curiosity and my kind of blank slate mindset to just lead me wherever. And because I, I just found also in observing other people that, when people take risks that are in alignment with their, their passions, they almost never regret it. And I get it. Risk is scary, but I've risked and failed enough times that I, if I get something in my head that I just think would be awesome to do, I, I go for it. And this, so many athletes can relate to that fantasy. Just, you, you know, even if you're not really gifted for the sport, if you, if you if you love it, you might find yourself thinking like, oh, just how far could I take this if I really invested in it? Like if I could just go on sabbatical from my job for a while and, and have like, you know, a top coach and support from great physical therapists and all that. And so I just, I was in a position where I could pull a string or two and actually get the opportunity. And so that's what I did uh, training for 
through the summer of 2017 with the uh, Hoka Northern Arizona elite team in Flagstaff. That's so cool. So you went there with your dog and your wife and you lived for how long did you live there? Well, and you were trained, you were training for a marathon. Yeah, I was, uh, I was there for 13 weeks. So the coach of the team, Ben Rosario, who's nine years younger than me, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we're going to talk about age in a minute because I have some questions for you. So he told me, um, he knew I was marathon focused. And so he said that I should come out for what he calls a, a full marathon segment, which is a 12 week block for for the real pros, you know, you're not getting up off the couch and training for 12 weeks, mind you. Like you're all you're already fit, but the marathon focus is 12 weeks. And I thought, okay, I'll tack one extra week on the front end of that just to acclimatize. So I was there for for 13 weeks, and I wanted, of course, you know, this whole thing. I was intending to write about it and share my journey from the outset. Otherwise, I never would have done it. It was self-indulgent, but it wasn't meant to be purely self-indulgent. <laughs> So I I wanted, it it needed to culminate in some kind of big challenge. And I wanted to run a marathon that at least one of the real members of the team was also running. And Ben suggested the Chicago Marathon, which I I had actually never run. So it worked out great. So you went up there for the summer and you trained and then you came back and did Chicago. When is Chicago? October? Yeah, it was October 8th that year. Yeah, we arrived in Flagstaff on July 7th. And then trained right up to maybe, I guess, three days before the Chicago Marathon and flew straight from Flagstaff. Well, not straight. We went through Phoenix to uh, to Chicago for the marathon because you know, I, I was doing everything exactly the way the pros do. So I was on the same flights as Aaron Braun, the real pro from NAZ Elite, who was also running Chicago. So, yeah, I just did. I was in their hands. I did everything I, you know, exactly the way they, they told me to. And so the timing of coming down from altitude to race can be tricky, but they said three days would, would probably be a sweet spot, and it, it worked out fine. Why did you pick NAZ Elite out of all the different race groups that you could have trained with? Two reasons. One, I did know Ben Rosario a little bit. We never met, but I certainly knew who he was, and I, I knew he knew who I was. He, he had sent me like a book to review once. He, he wrote a book, High School Cross Country Coaches, and I loved it. I loved everything I, I knew about him and the uh, the culture of his team. And you know, NEZ Elite has a reputation for being very open and transparent, and so that's what they do. They they view their job as being more than just going out and winning races. It's also inspiring and connecting with the broader running community. So I just felt that Ben would maybe get, understand what I was trying to accomplish, so would sort of see the vision. You know, there were other options. I had a plan B and a plan C if it didn't work out with any relief. But, but Ben, exactly as I expected, he understood it immediately and was, was genuinely enthusiastic about it and invited me out. So you did this in 2017, and you say in the book that you were 46, and you're looking to beat your all-time pace of 240, and also that happened nine years before you were doing this. How did you increase your speed and your pace at such, at like an older age? Yeah, that that was, I mean, I didn't think it was possible because, you know, I had been running lots of marathons, trying my best to run as fast as I could. And yeah, I peaked at 37. You know, that's one. You never know you're setting your last PR when you're setting. <laughs> you always think that there's a better day yet ahead, but time passed. And before I know it, I'm, I'm 40, I'm 42. And I was slowing down at every distance, you know, after that, after that PR at 37, I didn't come within eight minutes of that time in subsequent marathons. So I just felt like it was over. And I I actually went through a little bit of a midlife crisis, kind of a grieving for feeling, um, you know, my my best days were behind me and my best days actually weren't even all that good. (laughs) Um, So, you know, my goal, my, at least my punitive goal when I got to Flagstaff was just to run faster for the marathon than I'd been able to run since the PR, because I, I truly just, you know, being knowledgeable about the science of aging and endurance performance, I just did not think it was possible. However, all of us, every endurance athlete is a dreamer to some extent. And there was an, what I considered an irrational voice in my head that still wanted, still clung to the hope that I could join the, the, the sub 240 club. 
And, you know, during my time there, it, I started to realize that it, it wasn't all that irrational. <laughs> you know, I was just improving so quickly in terms of how, for me, it was not a matter of putting more time and effort into training because I was already doing that. It was just a, a matter of doing things like the pros, like honestly, not cutting corners and, and slacking anymore, but just doing all the little stuff. That was really the key for me. I, you know, I can't point to one thing. It wasn't just the altitude. It wasn't just the diet tweaks. It wasn't just the massage and physical therapy. It wasn't just the coaching. It wasn't just the team environment. It was all those things rolled together. Yeah. So how often did Coach Ben Rosario have you running? So the plan, it's funny, you know, you mentioned you don't run every day. And a lot of pure runners, they, they can't, they hate cross training. I had two things working to my advantage. One, a lot of triathlon experience. And two, I'm injury prone. I've always been injury prone. That's part of the reason that you know, I felt I hadn't realized my full potential previously. And so I was accustomed to cross training. And for, for the few years, three or four years leading up to my fake pro runner experience, I was, you know, I was training twice a day, most days, but I was only running every other day. Um, but I, I, it so happened that I, I did a cross country trip, an eight week cross country trip in the spring before I went out to Flagstaff. And when I was on the road, I really, cross training wasn't really much of an option. So I eased back into running every day during that trip. And it was a little bumpy initially, but I, I was able to kind of find my footing. So that that's where I was when I showed up in Flagstaff. I was basically running every day. And then my second workout would be some form of cross training. So I warned Ben, you know, I'm, I'm brittle. Uh, so I, you know, cause like any good coach, he, he has his approach, but he also wants him. He wants to individualize his program to the athlete. So he knew I was experienced and he wanted to hear from me, like what has worked for you, what hasn't worked for you. So he was prepared for me to do a fair amount of cross training there, but as it worked out, you know, I just started doing, trying some two a day runs and um, ended up just being able to tolerate it pretty well. So I was, I was running twice a day, most days, not doing quite the volume that the total mileage that the real pros were, but I got up over 90 miles a week. So you kind of eased off the cross training and focused more on the running. What was your diet like when you were training? Not so much. I mean, I did lose weight while I was there. You know, I was one of those people who had like an A minus diet probably uh, going to fly, fly stuff. And I thought, right. well, shoot, for 13 weeks, I can turn that into an A plus. And it helped that I lived with a member of the team, Matt Yano, who he has an A plus diet. So I, I just sort of you know, copied him a little bit. He had a microwave. I don't think I ever saw him use it. Just everything you know, that if you want a secret, it's not pros don't eliminate entire food groups. They they eat, just eat natural, unprocessed, high quality stuff. And it's actually a very inclusive way of eating like. There's a kind of a the, the book has little refrains in it, things that you know just come up again and again. And one of them is the concoctions that Matt Yano would put together. Like he would have like a breakfast bowl or you know a one pot dinner with literally like 15 things in it, like stuff that like how does that go together? <laughs> but like, that's the approach. Like it's funny. Like all the hardcore amateur athletes are all about like what do I not eat? What do I not eat? The pros are like they're they're doing backflips to eat more different stuff you know they try to include as much as they possibly can to check all the boxes keep their diet really well rounded i consciously eat like elite endurance athletes i mean i have a whole book about it the endurance diet so you know it's one of those things where you know practice what you preach i, I knew that i you know i, I was there were there were areas of slack in my diet so all i did when i got there was just clean them up you know i there were a few things that that I just knew I could, I could do without, like, I, I like dark chocolate. I don't, I don't gobble it, but I just didn't have any dark chocolate the whole time I was there. It was like a few, few little tweaks like that. You know, just upping my game. What did you do for injury prevention? I know you mentioned you are prone to being injured. I think the thing that helped more in terms of injury prevention was where I live, there aren't, there's not a lot of convenient trail access. And in Flagstaff, it's just a paradise of, beautiful trails to run on. And we did all of our easy runs on trails. And so that made a huge difference. I mean, one day trail versus road, that doesn't make a difference. But if it's, 
six, seven, eight runs a week that you're transferring to that softer surface, that made the, the total amount of mileage I was running a lot gentler on my body. Yeah. I'd never thought about it that way, but that makes sense because we're like running on concrete all the time. I wanted to ask you about the nutrition again. I mean, COVID has crushed me in terms of my diet and (laughs) I'm okay with that. It's like a gap year for me this year. It's just like, whatever. Like turned, my training is just fun. That's it. That's my total summation of what's happening. And my diet is equally fun. (laughs) So I've re... (laughs) I've like reintroduced salt and vinegar potato chips to my diet, which I haven't eaten in like eight years. And dark chocolate is, it's like the end of the day. It's part of my routine. I'm obsessed with these Hugh Kitchen chocolate bars. And on some level, because it's like organic, I'm okay with it in some dumb way. And yeah, and normally I'm like training 12 hours a week. And so that's okay to eat those things. And I'm not a pro, so it doesn't matter. But right now, it could be problematic. <laughs> it's at that pivot turning point. You've written that nutrition book. I mean, obviously sugar is not good for you. <laughs> but dark chocolate. Yeah. So what's your normal nutrition like, though, before we move on to training with the pros? <laughs> you know, there's no real stick to it. But I, I just, I do eat everything. Big emphasis on fruits and vegetables. All my grains are whole grains. I eat meat, I guess, somewhat sparingly, um, definitely more fish than meat. So I'm like, a, you know, a few times a week. And, but, you know, I do, I, I just, I hit all the food groups. I have, you know, dairy in my diet. But, you know, it's all just like the, the thing I like about the way the pros eat. And that, that's all I really do is copy. Obviously, they don't all eat the same, but there are patterns. And you don't have to, a lot of people get too clever by half with their diet. It's like, like I have granola for breakfast and some people will look about at that and say, oh, that's not healthy. Well, tell me why not? Like it, it's whole grains. It's almost zero sugar. You know, organic whole milk is good for you. The fresh berries I put on it are good for you. You know, it, it's high carb, it's high fiber. It's got vitamins and minerals. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, that breakfast. And you know what? I grew up eating that way. I've just raised my standards. Uh, definitely way up on the whole grains, way down on the sugar. And you don't have to get all weird, you know, with your diet. You can think, you can eat things that are yeah. culturally normal for you, that are familiar, that you like, that are convenient. And that's kind of how I go through my day. Now I have one secret weapon, which is my wife, Nataki, who is an, an excellent cook, someone who you know does not mind cooking. And so she cooks a lot, you know, every now and then when she takes a couple of days off and I have to do it, you know, the, our meals are not as good. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're as healthy, but they're not as good. I'm spoiled. So that, that helps a lot. And, and because, yeah. you know, I work at home. So my lunch is usually like leftovers from dinner. So my, my lunches and my dinners are, they all, they all look like dinner, basically, you know. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's all about habit building. You know, it took me a while. Like I used to yeah. eat potato chips and I, I just stopped buying them and I missed them at first. And, and now I don't, yeah. don't miss them. So you don't have a 12-year-old in your house. (laughs) It's killing me. She got Oreos the other day, and I'm like, then you're like eating them. (laughs) I did not eat one of them. (laughs) Once they're inside the house, it's game over. Yeah. It's over. I need the mental strength to run and train, and like now I also have to make sure I'm not eating the Oreos. (laughs) It's just a whole other level of mental strength that is beyond me. (laughs) But if you've been there before, it's you can get back. It's harder to do it the first time around, I think. Yeah, I'm getting back. I'm done. If they buy any more chocolate, it's <laughs> over. But back to you. Who were the pros that you, you were training with and what was the vibe like? So there were about, there were about a dozen members uh, of the team at that time. It was more men than women. And, and Ben was working to correct that because he, he really wanted close to a 50-50 split. Ben, he described himself to me as a culture builder. So he didn't want to just find the 12 most talented young runners he could get. He wanted character. He wanted team-oriented people. He wanted maturity, and he got it. He has a pretty rigorous recruitment process, and he, so he just had a you know high-quality bunch of folks there. And the team thing was real. And I was there every day. Like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm I'm the the old writer interloper initially, and people are censor themselves a little bit around me. But after a few weeks, they're just completely being themselves. So I I saw the real deal. I saw when there was friction between a couple of members of the team and. But mostly what I saw was just real 
support and encouragement. And I, I was the beneficiary of a lot of that. And yeah, some of the top runners on the team are best known. Stephanie Bruce, she, she has a, a big following, especially among women runners. And not only just a great athlete, but kind of, you know, an inspiring role model type. You know, she's a mom, has two boys and just makes it happen. He's getting better with age, which is really inspiring. Also on the team, better known now than he was then is Scott Bobble, who was the top finisher at Boston last year, ran 209, which I think was like the second fastest time run by an American marathoner that year. And uh, so, yeah, just a high, high powered group. Of course, Matt Yano, 60, 61 yeah. minute half marathoner, first openly gay professional uh, runner, a great bunch of folks. And, you know, I couldn't keep up with them except for when I got really fit, I could keep up with them on easy runs. But I was one of the gang uh, eventually <laughs> after they got used to me. And it was <laughs> it was a blast. And, I, you know, I miss it to this day. I get back there as often as I can because I've you know maintained friendships. I, I was I've been terrified since the book came out that one of them would re read it and like not like how they were portrayed. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I mean, my, as I've told the ones who've given me their feedback, my affection for them is genuine. And, you know, I hope that that comes across not only to the athletes themselves, but to everyone reading, is able to connect with each and every one of them at some point along the way and genuinely like and respect every single one of them. That comes through in the book, definitely. In each each chapter, you connect or talk about like a different person that you're meeting with along the way of your training. So that's kind of cool. Now, were they doing your 80-20 training? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the funny thing about that is, you know, the, the whole I'm associated with that uh, ratio because I've written two books about it and I have, you know, a business, online training business, 80-20 endurance. But, you know, I'm not the guy who came up with it. It was, you know, it comes from the research of uh, an exercise physiologist, Steven Seiler, who, you know, he just studied how elite endurance athletes in a variety of sports, everything from rowing to running to cross-country skiing, like how they actually train. And he found that they tend to hew to an 80% low intensity, 20% moderate to high intensity balance. So I just absorbed that research. And, the, and my, my shtick has always been like as an athlete first and as a coach second, model what you do after the best practices of the best athletes. Like it doesn't mean you a blindly copycat, you know what I mean? But you look, yeah, you look for, right. you can tease out things that just seem to work and then you scale them down to your level and, and you're off to the races, so to speak. So that's what I do. But the funny thing about it is that, you know, the pros themselves don't count that way. That's why they were already doing it, but it took Steven Tyler to run the numbers through a calculator and say, oh, here, by the way, this is what you're doing. I'm like, well, we don't think of it that way. And, and Ben Rosario is the same way. Like, if you ask him, and I have asked him, like, do you believe in the 80-20 rule? He's like, yes. But does he actually sit down with a calculator and, and plan that way? No. But while I was there, you know, because, again, I was basically doing what the the real pros were doing, just scaled to, to my level. And I, I ran the numbers a couple of times just out of curiosity. And that's really what it was. It was 80-20. It was yeah. I like some of the runs that you were doing. It seemed like at the time you were also discovering them, like the speed workout that was like eight times 1K and then six times 200K or doing two mile tempo efforts. Like, is, are those things that you would normally do or like, were they new to you Yeah, as for, well? For, I guess, you know, for those listening who might be like kind of like hardcore training geeks who are like into the X's, X's and O's, that is a nugget for sure, because when you are self-coached and, you know, even if you're very knowledgeable and experienced, like if you're self-coached, you know, it takes so much physical energy to do the training that you can get a little lazy with the mental side of it and just default to the familiar and, and just do, I mean, you, you do, you do challenging workouts, you do effective workouts, but you, mm -hmm. you keep it simple, you know, because it, you know, it can take a lot of energy to drop fancy, complicated uh, workouts. So everything I was doing, or almost everything before I got to Flystaff was pretty vanilla. I mean, it was, it was textbook, but vanilla. And in under Ben Rosario's coaching, I did a lot of workouts that were anything but vanilla. <laughs> yeah, just like they were fun and interesting and, and, and sometimes brutally challenging and complex you know there's one work that i did that i described in, in the book that i i literally had to make a crib sheet for it 
because I couldn't I couldn't keep it all in my head. So I like I wrote it all down, laminated it with scotch tape and stuffed it in my shorts so I could refer to it while I was doing the workout. I honestly think that's what people need right now. Now is a great time for people to set new goals and also like maybe discover new training innovative, fun, different kinds of runs or training that kind of take them out of the monotonous everyday runs that they're used to doing because we don't have races. So it would be it's fun to kind of like explore. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And you know, that's exactly what I'm doing. I, I actually got sick right around this, the time this thing hit. I, I wasn't able to get tested, but I'm 99% sure it was COVID. And it took me out for a month. I went from I was really on a roll with training in the fall and the winter, and then the bottom dropped out. I, I just, it was just a complete lost month. And so I was kind of starting over. I was coming out of it in early, mid-April. And, and since then, so, you know, when everyone else was missing races, I just wanted to be healthy again. And so there was this right. whole like delayed impact uh, for me. But yeah, once I had, once I was starting to get my legs back, I'm like, well, I need something I need something to chase here. And that's exactly what I've been doing. I've just been getting creative, just coming up with stuff. I mean, not stupid stuff, stuff that kind of has a rationale to it. But I'll just give you an example. Like a couple of weeks ago or I don't know, recently, I decided to do a 5K time trial at the end of a 20 mile run. So I ran 17 miles easy just to soften up my legs. I'm like, okay, what do I have left for an all out 5K? It was just was it a race? Was it a workout? I don't know, but it was fun. <laughs> and I think it did me some good. <laughs> yeah. So you think you had COVID? I mean, you were just like out down for the yeah, count. Yeah. You know, I've, I've like anyone, you know, I've had, I've had colds and flus before, but you know, they're usually a two, three day thing. And this, I just could not shake it. And, and so much of it, everyone gets it in a different way. And that's part of what's weird about this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife, my wife got it, whatever I had, she had, and, and she experienced it very differently, but sort of the hallmark symptoms I had were, you know, the, the dry cough and the breathing restriction, you know, it's different. Cause like if you, if you're a well-trained endurance athlete, you're going to experience those sy- symptoms differently. So I think someone who maybe was older, heavier in, in poorer health, if they got, you know, exactly what I got, they might be able to, they might have trouble breathing well enough to speak in full sentences. That wasn't my deal, but I couldn't, I couldn't move. Like not only could I not exercise, like if I climbed a flight of stairs, I felt the tightness in my chest and I would more likely than not have a coughing fit. So that's how it affected me. So it was actually like, it was like hell on earth for an endurance athlete because I couldn't move. Like I did you also have a fever? The fever was mild at most. I never actually took my temperature, but I think I did have a mild fever that came and went three times, but that was not a major symptom for me, no. Yeah. My friend is a cyclist and he had it. He said that he he legitimately thought he was dying. Like he felt like he was drowning when he was coughing. Like it was like so bad. And he had it early, beginning of March-ish. And he is just now getting on Zwift and back yeah. on the bike. He just could, he just got really crushed. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I got it around the same time. I came home from the uh, Atlanta marathon slash Olympic trials marathon with it or whatever it was. And yeah, I, I was coughing so hard. I coughed so hard. I threw up one time. I coughed so hard. I, I coughed off oh my blood God. another time. I actually injured ribs. That actually, that actually ended up being the worst of it because even after I got better and I couldn't get in to see doctors, they wouldn't let me in. And so even after I injured my ribs, I mean, I was just in excruciating pain and, and I just had to ride it out. And, and even after I was basically healthy again, like running was just so painful because of my, my ribs. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you can break a rib coughing, but it sure felt like it. It was terrible. You probably had a lot of like internal bruising. So now are you feeling a little bit better? Like how are your, how are your runs going? I'm wired the way I am. You know, I, I, I've been, I, I don't, I don't know. I can't explain myself to myself, but I, there, <laughs> I mean, like the, the <laughs> hunger never diminishes. Like I'm just always hungry to get after something. And, and that I'm sure that will, that will go away at some point and I'll be golfing. <laughs> Maybe Who knows? Not. But I just, I go with it. 
And, <laughs> and so as soon as I yeah. felt like, okay, I can start thinking about training again, instantly I wanted like a big challenge. But you know, I'm also at the point where it's not so much like chasing PRs anymore. It's just like adventuring and, and learning. So I, I decided to, a friend of mine who does the Rambling Runner po- podcast, Matt Chittum, he was doing a series of virtual races and it, it went from 5K to 10K to half marathon to marathon. And I was going to do all four, but I was sick for the first two. I wasn't, I was healthy again, but not ready for the half marathon. And when I was, at the time I did my first run, I got out of bed and I was able to do a run. I had five and a half weeks to the virtual marathon. And I thought, you know what? I'm still going to do it. Like, <laughs> like I would never tell an athlete I coached <laughs> to do that. But I just yeah. wanted the challenge. I just wanted to see, like, I knew I wasn't, wasn't going to run the greatest marathon, but I just, I knew it would be a great, first of all, I needed it just from a motivational perspective. Right. And second, mm-hmm. I just wanted to see just as an intellectual challenge, like, what can I make of this time? Because you might think, oh, it's all about forcing it. No, it's all about making great decisions. Like, that's what I had to do. I had to come up with a great plan to compress training and I had to make smart adjustments on the fly. So, yeah, it was like I had to I had to work hard, but that wasn't really muscling, like forcing it wasn't going to uh, allow me to do it. And then look back and say, you know what, that couldn't have gone any better. So it was just a fun way to sort of bootstrap my way back into you know, I knew that once I did that virtual marathon, it was really just the beginning. Like now, it's like, okay, now I can right. look ahead. But it it totally served its purpose. It was a great experience, and I learned a ton. That's awesome. I haven't signed up for any virtual races yet. Like I know Ironman has all their virtual races. Rock and Roll is doing virtual runs. There's Strava. There's New York Roadrunners. There's like all these options. But I'm still like doing my own thing. <laughs> Talking about motivation and mind over muscle, your book, How Bad Do You Want It, is one of my all-time favorite books that I've ever read, like not just running books. When it comes to endurance sports and life, whether it's running, triathlon, cycling, or swimming, mindset is so important. And you just touched upon that with even getting yourself back to running and back to training and racing. It really is the difference between athletes that podium and win and it really sets the pace for every athlete's journey race experience training and it's also okay not to want to win but maybe just to have it something be your goal and so in your book how bad do you want it you talk a lot about mindset and the psychobiological concept of mind over muscle so tell me a little bit about this book and what inspired you to write it and maybe some things that athletes can take from it now that you're doing as well. Yeah. So when I was a high school runner, it became apparent to me that I was not mentally strong. And I actually go into that at the beginning of that book. And I mean, it was just a fact. <laughs> like I, I definitely was more physically gifted than I was like, I guess, mentally ready for it because, you know, endurance sports are they're hard. It's you. You have to be willing to suffer. You have to be brave in order to not just uh, succeed, but even find fulfillment. Because I mean, if if you don't want any kind of challenge, you're not going to start in the first place. Like it's self-selecting for people who welcome a challenge. But then it becomes a matter of like, well, how much of a challenge do you want? <laughs> and for me, so I, I quit largely because I just I could not face the suffering required to fulfill. Um, my my physical potential. And then when I got back into it later, um, that was a monkey I wanted to get off my back. Uh, I, you know, I, I had goals, as I mentioned, you know, just overambitious <laughs> goals uh, performance wise. But the greater journey for me was really becoming a different sort of man, like becoming closing the gap between the person I wanted to be and the person I was. And that's the great thing about endurance sports. It's like, it, you don't have to, but you sh- the opportunity is there to use them for that purpose. You know, to the, the outer journey really can become an, an inner journey that takes you places as a, as a human being, you wouldn't go otherwise. And so, you know, I have a deep personal interest in the mental aspect of endurance sports. And then it's just a really hot area of research right now. You mentioned Sam Wellamarcora's psychobiological model of endurance performance. There's just there's a lot going on. Like even psychologists who aren't interested in endurance sports are studying it because it's such a, a fertile crucible for seeing 
by sort of the extremes of human psychology at work. But anyway, that psychobiological model is based on the idea that the true limiter of endurance performance is uh, psychological. We have physical limits, but we can't not like in a sprint, you can in a maximum bench press, you can you like you are you directly encounter your physical limits in those types of sports. But in endurance sports uh, where you, you know, you're pacing yourself and holding back and trying to judge, well, how much do I really have left? That's all psychological. And it just becomes like a really uh, unique kind of mental game. And some people are really good at it. And some people like me early on, not so much. And but anyone can get better. Like you can't change your DNA, right? Like you're born with whatever amount of right. physical potential. But even a, you know, a, a runner with or a, a triathlete with not a lot of speed can become a Jedi of the mental game. And that to me is exciting because it's really democratizing. Like if you choose to invest yourself in, in the process, you, I mean, I'm living proof. I, I, I view my, I view my mental game as a real strength now, whereas it was a, a huge liability early on. So it can be very rewarding to be intentional about the process of getting better in, in the psychological aspect. When I was reading your book, it really resonated, like everything that you talk about, because I'm training and I'm racing and I'm not a pro and, you know, I'm not trying to podium, but, you know, there's some part of me that would love to win my age group or maybe come in third at a smaller race. And is that just like an idea that I want to do that, but I'm not training to do that? There's a gear that you click into and it hits you and you're like, do I have what it takes? Because what it takes is not just physical. You mentally need to commit and you have to want it. And I was never able to mentally grasp that concept. I was just training and racing and having fun. What is going to be the difference for me to get faster or come into my age group or whatever it was? And I'm like, I just yeah. don't want it. Because if I wanted it, I would have it because that's how I am. So then I was like, why well, don't I want it? <laughs> it really made me think. And it was really constructive and helpful because it kind of got me on a different track. You know, I'm not trying to win in my age group, but I am trying to be the best I can. And I know that it's not physical, it's mental. Yeah, it was, it's an awesome book. Thank you. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a follow-up to it, kind of. So if you like that book, that one called The Comeback Quotient coming out in December. I refuse to write the same book twice. You know, that would be boring, but uh, it hits similar themes. But the title gives you some sense of what it's all about, the comeback quotient. Tell me a little bit about the book. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, every endurance athlete is always trying to come back from something, whether big or small. For me, uh, that's one great example where I just got taken out by a pretty severe respiratory illness and then had to start. Hmm. Which one was that? <laughs> <Right>. No, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> So there's that, but there's also, you know, you could be coming back from a confidence crushing workout. It's never all going right in endurance sports. And so it's a thing. And even if you're just like a fan of sport, you love a great comeback story, right? Yeah. And so we admire the athletes who pull off like seemingly miraculous comebacks, but we seldom sort of scratch the surface or, you know, go beneath the surface and think about what's actually the process involved. Like, you know, we can just, we can sit back and be in awe of these athletes, or we could study them. And that's what I do in this book. I, I, I look for common features in the process that's underlying come, comebacks that look very disparate on the surface, because there, there's a million different flavors of comebacks. And in the book, I, I try to touch on a variety to show that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm defining this concept very broadly, so that we can all relate. Uh, and then looking at what are the, the real masters of the comeback? What is there something that they're all doing? And if so, what is it? And can we also have it? <laughs> That's awesome. It's very much similar to the style of How Bad Do You Want It, where you where each chapter is like you take a moment from endurance sports and feature an athlete and you parallel their story to nine habits and tactics that we use to cultivate our own mental yeah, strength. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's even the same. Pub, it's even the same publisher. It's uh, yeah. I'm excited about it. I'm excited for your new book. Now we're living in these COVID times, and races are canceled, and gyms are closed. Do you have any advice for athletes on how to reframe their training or set new goals? Yeah, you know, in, in the early week, I was really encouraging everyone, and most athletes I talked to were were kind of doing this just instinctively, is to 
you know, not feel obligated to, to say do virtual races if they just don't excite you or everyone is reacting differently to a situation like this. And you should just go with your way. Like as long as you, you just need to be okay with it. When people get into trouble is when they think, yeah. oh, I'm losing motivation. What's wrong with me? Well, maybe nothing's wrong with you. Like maybe this is just a good time to, you know, let the, let it take a back seat. Like you told me with like eating potato chips again. Well, you know, there's a season for all things. And, and, and sometimes it can just be fine to let yourself go a little bit. It's only not fine if you beat yourself up for it at the same time. So for, for me, you know, I'm a little weird. The virtual races are, they're they're not going to scratch the itch forever, but they're, they're keeping me motivated. One thing you can do is just, and, and a lot of the pros, the pros are just role models for so much. And they are in, in this environment too. They're coming up with alternative goals, process-oriented goals. And I've been doing a little bit of that as well. So educating myself. I have a little bit of extra time because I can't go out to eat or whatever. So I've been reading more and just educating myself. I took the opportunity to buy a few pieces of inexpensive equipment just for home strength training and learning new exercises and techniques. And then guess what? You know, after the races are back, I none of that's wasted. I, you know, I, I put the effort into it and now I've got it. It's a new tool. And so anyone can do that stuff. I focusing a little bit on cooking. Like if you, if you've been stuck at home and you, you know, you're in your own kitchen more expand your repertoire, you know, of healthy meals that you know how to prepare for yourself. So that, that can be a nice in-between thing where you're still engaging in the sport, but in, in sort of more process oriented versus outcome oriented ways. I feel like all that really resonates with me too. I'm not overly inspired by the virtual training, but I am inspired by just having fun as opposed to taking my training seriously. And if that means eating potato chips, that's cool. (laughs) It's a whole new thing. But I actually, you know, I'm in New York City, so it's been super challenging to get outside just mentally, not physically, but mentally, just wrap my head around. I can't run on the West Side Highway because there's so many people and I just don't want to get COVID. Or So I had to like start running on the streets and on the sidewalks and over cobblestone. And it's just totally different. But actually, I feel like a few weeks ago, it kind of turned around for me. So I'm able to, you know, I've been discovering new architecture and new art around the city. And just I would never run in the streets because they're usually packed with people. So it's just I flipped it. It took me just to get back on my bike. Yesterday, I went to Central Park for the first time in probably since last year. And normally, I would have been out riding probably in like May. But I just couldn't get out on my bike. And I've been on Zwift, which has been a lifesaver because I'm having so much fun in Watopia. <laughs> Are you on Zwift? Do you have a trainer cycling? I, I'm not on Zwift, but I, I do have a Wahoo kicker and so use that. But yeah, I've been able to get out. Yeah, I live out in the country. So I mean, yeah. I couldn't ride a bike at all for a month. But but yeah, now I, I've been uh, doing a mix of indoor and outdoor riding. Now, you you dabbled as a triathlete. <laughs> But you wrote one of the greatest books of all time <laughs> about Dave Scott and Mark Allen, Iron War. What inspired you to write that book? It's a classic. When I was growing up, I watched coverage of ABC Sports coverage of the Ironman World Championship each year. I was, I was a runner. I thought it was really cool. So I, I was fans of Dave Scott and Mark Allen. And then I land into this career where I actually get to know them. You know, Mark Allen wrote the foreword to my very first book. It was just like a generic triathlon training guide. It came out in 2003. And Dave Scott and I worked for, well, we were partnered with the same sports nutrition company for a while. We got to know each other a bit through that. And the more I learned about their story, their their stories, the more depth, the more layers I saw to it. And, and just, yeah, I thought, you know, this really... Everyone felt like they knew the story, but I knew some of the layers. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this deserves a, an, a, an entire book. And I thought, you know what? Why not me? So, yeah, it's just it's just an incredible story. But there's so much, especially if you're an athlete yourself, there's so much you can take away from getting the full story. What was one big takeaway that you might share with athletes? One thing that just fascinated me so much was that Dave and Mark were peerless. I mean, they were each other's peers and rivals, but they were literally miles ahead of, (laughs) 
of everyone else, especially on that fateful day in October 1989. And they are nothing alike. And it just goes to show you that there's no one personality type. There's no one character makeup that is required to get to the top or just, you know, be the best you can be as an athlete. Like you can be whoever you are, but you have to go on this inner journey. And that's what both Dave and Mark were able to do. So they were nothing alike. They didn't have the same formula, but they did the work. You know, obviously they were both physically gifted, but it was so much more than that. So I think that's inspiring for people. Whoever you are, you you can do it your way. You can be yourself, but it's not going to just come to you. (laughs) Right. You need to do the work. Last but not least, Life is a Marathon is one of your famous books about how marathoning is a metaphor for life. And it's you talk about all the lessons and things that happen along the course that are well beyond running. What inspired you to write this book? And I know it's very personal about your how running has helped you in your life. Yeah, for me, I love running as a sport, but I also love it as, you know, this sort of inner journey, even like, you know, a spiritual journey. Again, like you don't have to use it in that way. I mean, heck, it can just be me time or social time or a vehicle for weight loss. But it has that potential. It, it can, you can become a different person by going where that opportunity leads you. And for me, you know, my life has had ups and downs like anyone's. And I guess I've struggled as an athlete because I viewed myself as kind of, as I mentioned before, kind of mentally weak, even cowardly. I didn't like the person I was. And so I used running to learn how to be brave. And then what ended up dovetailing with that effort in you know an unexpected way was my relationship my marriage so i, I in 95 and i was 24 years old i met and fell in love with a woman from a different world uh, nataki african-american whereas i'm white city girl whereas i'm a country boy up and down the line like no matchmaker would have ever put us together except the mutual friend who did i don't know <laughs> to this day we came from different worlds but we were able to build a foundation together got married And then she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and our world just went sideways. And there was kind of, and I don't hold anything back in this book, but there was a decade that was filled with drama and a lot of pain and heartache. And that raised the stakes of my inner journey because the person I was at the beginning of that process was not the person I needed to be in order to be the husband I needed to be to my wife. Because it's not like I fell out of love with her. She just developed a disease and it, it kind of turned both of our worlds upside down. So, you know, not everyone can relate to exactly that story, but everyone has their story. You know, life gets hard. If, if life isn't hard for you today, wait a day. <laughs> it's, it's going to get hard. And being an endurance athlete is such a rich opportunity to I really sort of train your mind and spirit to be able to handle what life throws at you. So I'm telling my story in the book, but it's really meant to inspire people uh, and give them something to take away to tackle you know, their own misfortunes or, or challenges if and when they come up. Yeah, I mean, for me, running is my moving meditation and it just makes me realize you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And it's just like one foot in front of the other. That metaphor is always ringing yep. true for me. I mean, there's always going to be challenges, but in marathoning, it is a metaphor for life. I get it. I loved it after, <laughs> like when it was done. <laughs> yeah. Type B fun, they call that. Fun in retrospect. I love it. Fun in retrospect. Okay. What is your next big run challenge? I'm actually, I'm planning a little bit of a, a little something I'm going to do another virtual, well, not well, kind of a solo marathon. I was inspired by Elliot Kipchoge's effort to break the two-hour barrier in the marathon, where normally you just try to get to the finish line as fast as possible. But the goal number one is to finish, right? And then as fast as possible. For him, it was sub two hours or bust. For him, it was just, you know, here's the pace I have to run. I'm going to run it as long as I can. And if I make it to the finish line, yay. If not, so be it. And so that's what I want to do. I want to, the, the pace I ran in the Chicago Marathon was 6.05 per mile. So I'm going to start off at 6.04 per mile and see how long I can keep going. And I want to just put a little effort into setting up something cool and allowing other people to follow along as I, as I attempt this. And also invite other people to do something similar. You know, it's just, it's, it's all about, again, just like doing something that seems a little crazy on the face of it, but 
kind of just every now and again something that isn't possible turns out to be after all so that's that's what i'm working on that's pretty cool are there any brands that are involved in like bringing awareness to this beyond no it's just uh, it's my own thing i mean it will be loosely associated with my 80 20 endurance thing and i do want to involve do some fundraising uh, definitely i'm, I'm going what i'm going to do is i'm going to um commit a certain amount for every mile I survive at that pace. <laughs> so I'm in the process yes. of choosing. I have I've raised money for a couple of mental health related charities in the past. So I'm in the process of trying to find the right one to, to benefit. That sounds great. Good luck. Well, this has been so awesome, Matt. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're your very time. welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, moneyonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. <laughs>